On April 20th, 2020, at 2.08 Eastern Standard Time, global energy markets went through the looking glass. 83,000 barrels of oil exchange hands at $0 a barrel. The same month, the International Energy Agency released its Global Energy Review 2020. Due to COVID-19, the report estimates countries in full lockdown experience an average 25% decline in energy demand each week. And for 2020 overall, the IEA predicts global energy demand contracting by 6%, the largest retreat in 70 years, and more than seven times greater than the 2008 financial crisis. Maximilian Jarrett, you work at the International Energy Agency as its first program manager for Africa. What is it about energy economics in Africa? That's so important to you. Great question, Jeff. I've long been a student and someone who's been fascinated and interested in power. I say that because power and politics and economic history and those things have been things that have really, I studied them at university. I've always wanted to know what makes people tick, what makes systems tick. But as the years have gone by, I spent the first, say, 11 years in broadcasting of the BBC, interviewing uh, revolutionaries, presidents, politicians, business people. Then I transitioned into the United Nations, working on economic policy. But as things went on, we realized, and I realized that energy, the power to actually to drive systems is what's really key. And I spent four of the last five years working with the late Kofi Annan, the former UN Secretary General on something called the Africa Progress Panel. We had other members such as Grassa Michelle was part of that, Bob Gerloff and others. And the one issue on which we spent three years to do two reports was on energy power, because we realized that it was a travesty that in the 21st century, over 650 million Africans did not have access to modern energy. So I could have spent all these years looking at power and looking at you know, Africa's role in the world and so forth. But until we in Africa can get the majority of Africans getting low priced, accessible, sustainable, modern energy, we're not going to transform that continent. And I want to see that continent, my continent, transform so that it can take its true place on the global stage. But until we have modern energy for everyone, we're not getting anywhere. And that's what attracted me to this role where I'm the first Africa program manager, because in this position, I can use the expertise I have from my background of the United Nations, you know, my background as a kind of current affairs broadcaster, working with Kofi Annan, pushing this agenda, to now try and work with the IEA to make this case for Africa and to see what we can to bring the expertise of the IEA and other players to bear to move this agenda forward in Africa. So that's what's been driving me and what is still driving me now. I'm doing it because I'm passionate about it. And I want to see as soon as possible the transformation to the lives of the majority of Africans so they can have this access to modern energy. It's key. And energy economics is what we'll be exploring in today's conversation. Welcome to the Knowledge Institute podcast, where we talk with experts on business trends, deconstruct main ideas, and share their insights. I'm Jeff Cavanaugh, head of the Infosys Knowledge Institute. Today, we're here with Maximilian Jarrett. Max is the International Energy Agency's first Africa program manager with 30 years experience in international economic affairs, media production, and strategic communications. He most recently served as the director in charge of the Geneva-based Africa Progress Panel, which was chaired by the late Kovianan and Nobel Prize Peace Laureate and former UN Secretary General. Prior to this role in the Africa Progress Panel, Max spent over a decade working with the UN in Africa, started his career in 1990 at the BBC, producing and presenting Focus on Africa and Network Africa, the BBC's daily current affairs programs and award-winning programs for its African audience. He holds a bachelor's degree in economics from the London School of Economics and a master's from London University's School of Oriental and African Studies. Max, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jeff. You'd mentioned about some early ideas on power. What really inspired you to join the IEA? 
I was inspired to apply for this job and then to compete for the position. It was quite a rigorous process I went through because I've long admired the IAA from a distance. When I was working on the Africa Progress Panel, we put out two reports, uh, Power People Planet in the advance of the COP21 conference in Paris. And then we did another report called Light Power Action in 2017. We referenced a lot of the good work that the IA had been doing in terms of global energy analysis and data and so forth. And I've always liked the work of the institution. So when I saw that they were looking for someone who could help them advance their agenda in terms of working more closely with African states and working with Africa, I thought, well, I'm interested in it. It's an organization that I respect, and I think I can add some value. And so that's essentially what inspired me to join the EI, and I'm, I'm loving it. You go back early, especially back in mineral college or early in your career, was there anything that you noticed about energy and what has changed maybe today about how energy affects power and, and politics compared to when you were younger? I want to make it really personal for a few moments. I was born in Monrovia, Liberia in 1969, stones throw away from the Atlantic Ocean. And at the time, I was privileged enough to come from a family that, you know, had access to modern energy. My father was the medical director of a German mining company. We had free electricity, free running water. We had power in the house. There was a bloody civil war that started in Liberia in 1989 that ran for 14 years. And I had a lot of family who were still in Liberia during that process. And as the war went on, he started hearing people complain about power. So if you imagine, as a young person, power, electricity was taken as a given. To have my country destroyed to such an extent that the people who were used to have power to have no power, I realized, first, the importance of energy. You know, you can't do anything about energy, really. And how important politics and policy and good governance is to ensuring you have the infrastructure in place, have the system running, and to have the kind of power that you need to do what you have to do. So for me, I've always been fascinated by why is it that systems either don't get built up to the degree that we want them, or why is it that they fail? And that interplay between the power of politics and the politics of power is something that's really driven me, I would say, in the last five years since I started working on this report I had mentioned earlier with the Africa Progress Panel, Power People Planet, because then we really realized that it's not rocket science. But of course, you need politics, you need policy, you need good, strong leadership, you need financing, and you need narratives that kind of align everything to ensure that the money does flow to where it needs to flow, to ensure that you have the systems that are built, not just for today, but for tomorrow and for what comes after tomorrow. Not only is that in a nutshell, uh, it also <laughs> gives us several things to, as they say, unpack uh, as we go along here. When you look at the International Energy Agency. And I, I share that whole fascination with powers as fundamental energies, as fundamental component of life. Maybe we'll start there. We live in a high-tech world. At least many people are fascinated by technology and digital and the future. And yet these are building blocks. You mentioned energy, water, food. Can you talk about maybe almost like a Maslow's ladder, how these, these structural foundational things affect those more aspirational or more uh, sophisticated components and how maybe it's important for Africa? I think we really need to take it back to first principles. I've been using the phrase modern energy, but let's just talk about energy per se, okay? Let's bring it down to one of the most complex systems that we all know and we all deal with every day, the human body, which is a complex organism. It's a complex system. For you and I to get up in the day and do certain things, we need energy, okay? That energy comes from the food intake we take, the water we drink and so forth. And once that energy comes into us, we can decide how we want to use that energy. It's the same thing in a family. It's the same thing in an economy. 
Now, if you look at Africa today, I'm an economic historian. If you look at, say, the United States, we know that over a period of, say, 400 years, at a time before we had large-scale modern energy anywhere, where it was mainly coal or steam, the human body was the key life force energy in the economy. As a result, you had millions of Africans, their energy taken, transported to the New World, Latin America, the Caribbean, and the United States, to work, right? That was a life force, a force of energy to get things done, to get the United States economy to a certain stage before, say, steam and whatever, then you get into industrial revolution, and then things change, you have your civil war, and so forth. So energy and the force of things to get things moving in a society is key. Now, coming to modern energy, Africa today, basically due to the fact that, of course, it has the primary resources, it has the, the fossil fuels, it has the minerals, it has not got to a stage where it has rolled out modern energy systems to a scale so that those resources that we have as Africans can be used to transform our entire social economy to get us to the position where we are, like the United States or, or Europe or whatever. So energy is key. Energy is the key driving force. We're talking now also, of course, about the United Nations has the Sustainable Development Goals. And I remember Ban Ki-moon, another former Secretary General, said the energy SDG is the so-called golden thread that runs through all of them. And that's how I see it also. Unless you have energy, just like a human being, unless you eat or drink water, you can't do anything. So unless we get to a scale where the majority of Africans have the access to energy that they need, that first principle, you can't be talking about a truly transformed African continent. And about a truly transformed African continent, you can't be talking about a positively transformed globe in the 21st century. Because we all know, if you look at the trends, demographic trends, the fastest urbanizing continent on this planet is Africa. The continent with the youngest demographic bulge, so to speak, is Africa. So how do we make sure that those people are gainfully employed, not just working for others, creating their own businesses, being as creative as possible? And you should do that. You mentioned digital. Digital is nothing about energy, about modern energy. I mean, you can't go out there and just start, you know, peddling and running around and thinking that you're going to do bits and whatever and get things across the globe, but you need energy. So in that sense, energy is everything, it's the first principle. Go back even to, say, a typical village where in many parts of the continent today, young women, older women, and girls are going out to cut firewood to come back and get that biomass to cook. Three or four hours a day are lost on that. If we look at examples, I'm sure you probably got more data on this than me, but say, looking at America, what happened from the 1930s and 40s when the refrigerator came into the home or the stove, it freed up women to do other things. Again, women, 50% of our population, if they're spending three or four hours a day just literally going to get firewood, what could we do if we had modern energy that freed up those women and girls to be the next coders or the next whatever they want to do to help us create this modern economy that is good for Africa and good for the world? So again, energy is key. The things that people take for granted in the United States or the UK are things that so many Africans take for granted for not having. I want to make sure that we change that so that we're on an equal footing, we have an opportunity of access to modern energy, and so that really we can make a better world. Obviously, the passion's there. <laughs> As you look to the past few years, what are the green shoots or the hopeful signs of progress that you've seen? For example, The Economist recently, a few months ago, came out with the Africa as the next continent, a very upbeat article. I used to write for The Economist Intelligence Unit maybe 20 years ago. And I had a, a good friend and colleague who was the Africa editor of The Economist for, for many years. And I remember way back when they came out with a title, Africa, the Hopeless Continent, 
you know, and then everyone was like, oh, yep. economists are saying this. Then it came out another one saying Africa rising, you know, and other people know that McKinsey has Alliance on the move and other people are saying different things. But no matter what the title or the article has been, in my view, it has either been too much one way or too much the other way. The real African story has always been a lot more nuanced than that. So for, for me to answer the question, I'd say this is how I see it. Africa today is not where I had expected it to be when I left the London School of Economics in July 1990. I thought we would have gone further. However, it is not where we were in July or August 1990. There have been so many positive changes on the continent. We have made many steps forward. For example, in 1990, there was a range of wars on the continent, not civil wars. As a result of the Cold War, there were a lot of kind of proxy wars going on. You had the war in Angola, Namibia. Then we had a few civil wars, like the war in my country, Liberia. We had many one-party or quasi-one-party states in at the time. If you look at Africa now, the majority of African countries are functional, multi-party democracies. Elections are held. We may not always agree if who wins the elections, but elections are held. And opposition leaders, we see Ghana and Nigeria today, the people in power now, they were people who ran for election and lost a few times before winning. So we have functional transition of power, multi-party systems on the continent. Again, there, nothing is perfect, even democracy. We know what Churchill said about democracy. It's not the best system, but it's the least of many bads. So again, in that sense, we've moved forward. Yes, there's still violence on the continent, but those great player wars that we had before Cold War kind of shadow theaters in Africa have all gone. That's also a positive. If you look at the African economies, we have been able to make progress in terms of getting out of that rut of a post-1970s, mid-80s debt crisis with the HIPAA debt relief that many countries got around 2000. Off the back of that, we started seeing more and more consistent growth rates in African countries with you know, macroeconomic stability in more countries. You don't have the same kind of exchange rate swings that we had for many years. But again, I'm not being a Pollyanna here. Nothing is perfect. Many countries are still getting themselves back into debt. There's issues around the debt and the type of debt that is now owed to China. But that said, most African countries and the African, African economy until now, this COVID moment, has been on an upward growth trend, not as fast as we need. I remember when I first joined the United Nations in uh, 2001, we were saying that to see the true transformation of the African economies that we want in the way that, say, the Chinese had done after Deng Xiaoping and they, they made their progress, we need to see year on year 7% growth for that transformation. We're now in 2020. We have still not reached, as far as I'm concerned, that consistent level of growth. And now at the COVID moment, we're being knocked back. We also have to remember that when things were going well in those few economies where off the back of the last commodity super cycle, which ran for about three or four years, just after the last financial crisis, where we had a huge amount of revenues that African countries like Nigeria, Angola, Congo were getting for selling their commodities, principally to new demand from China. But what do we do with that? And at the time, when I worked with Mr. Anna, the Africa Progress Fund, we put our report in 2013 called Equity in the Extractive. And we were saying, you have to make sure that when the sun is shining, you take that revenue you get from what's under the ground and you turn it into wealth. How do you do that? You build human capital, make some investments that are longer term, build the road infrastructure, build the power infrastructure you need so that at some stage when those prices drop for the commodities, you at least have an endogenous generating economy that is able to thrive. And we see that the countries that uh, at the time did not have 
as much uh, mineral wealth or extractive wealth as some of the other countries. Say your Ethiopia, Rwanda, and so forth. They're the countries that actually were doing this. If you look at what's happened since the end of that commodity super cycle, if you look at, say, the data, the trends that have been quoted in terms of economic growth, you will see that it's actually countries that have not been the ones that have been so resource rich that have done better. So to answer your question, Africa has been on the move. I debunk the narratives of many of the other kind of the Western voices about Africa who one day will tell you all is well, and the next day will tell you all is horrible. I say every day the sun shines, but every day we do see some clouds. We have to keep looking to the light, keep looking to the sun, because things are getting better. And if we all put our hands to the wheel and we all have a positive outlook, we can change Africa for the better. And by changing Africa for the better, we will change this planet and this globe, this guide that we all live on for the better. Well said. Max, you mentioned a couple of things there. One is the emergence of China as a major partner. What are some implications and opportunities as that's happened? And has that played out or, or is that you still see that as being important for the future? I think China is a key player on the planet. We can't take that away. It's a fact. And China over the last 20 years has become more of a significant partner for Africa. But that's nothing new. China has for long been a partner of Africa. If you look at the African uh, liberation movements, several of them were in some way supported by China in their struggle against Western colonial rule and colonial oppression. So many countries have had long relationships with China. The more economic relationship is a new one. But again, I want to caution on us making an either or situation because many people will turn to Africa and say, well, what's Africa doing with China? Well, what's Africa doing with China? And, and the other Africans will say, oh, we're moving away from the West and we're just going to China. Again, I say we have to, as Africans, not let anyone decide who our friends are, but also not let anyone decide who our enemies are. We should look pragmatically and see what is it that we can gain from a relationship with anyone on this planet who's trying to do something positive, who can bring some investment to our continent. So in that sense, I think that the situation in terms of Africa's trade relations with China, if you actually break it down and just aggregate it, in some areas, we have a net surplus in terms of what we send to them. But in others, when we buy back, we have a net deficit because we are kind of importing all this processed manufactured material. Often people will complain that it's just material being dumped on the African market. But again, I would say that that's for African policymakers in terms of their trade to decide. Again, I'm not a trade expert, so I don't want you to quote me on this, but I think that these kind of things can be fixed so that we can arrive at a situation where it is a win-win. I'd like to see a win-win in Africa's relationship with the West, with the United States, with Europe, with China, with India, you know, so that things are done and we have a relationship where whatever the key drivers of that relationship are and the key outcomes of the relationship are, are things that actually trickle down in the best interest of African people, of Indian people, of Chinese people. Because that's what it's really about at the end of the day. If we want to transform the planet, we've got to make sure that the millions and the so-called, you know, colleagues bottom of the pyramid, they benefit from that. So I'm not an expert on China. You maybe want to speak to someone else about that. But I think that there's work needs to be done to improve what Africa over the long term is most likely to get out of that relationship. But I don't think that as Africans, we should rely on what others tell us in terms of how we negotiate and navigate improving that relationship for the long term with China. Looking at your Africa energy outlook, I'm not sure if you had a hand in that or if that was prior to starting you joining. That's prior before I came. One of the things it points out is the demand for energy in Africa is projected to be at least twice as fast as far as the growth. What do you see as the mix of sources of that energy from traditional to solar, hydro, or even in some of the newer times? What I can say is that Africa has an abundant fossil fuel resource. 
across the continent. So that's oil. We've got to also split oil from gas. Traditionally, it's been the oil exporters that've had the greatest share in terms of the energy mix coming out of Africa. Now we all know based on the agreement signed at Paris and so forth that we as human beings have to be burning less oil and using less of that. But at the same time, the African states have made a case that although we have agreed to transition as fast as possible to a low carbon economy and low carbon um, modern energy systems, we've got to be allowed to make our decision in terms of the judicious mix of how we transition oil has a reducing input into our energy systems and also in terms of what we sell to the world. At the same time, many African states also that only now just dis- discovered these vast gas reserves. And in order to get to where they want to go, I'm talking about say Tanzania and Mozambique and others, they realize they have to at some stage have a window in which they quote unquote exploit and harness that abundant resource both by selling it overseas, but also by using it in different ways within their own energy system to be able to structurally transform their economies to get to the level where they want to be so that we can then have a greater share of the renewables, the hydro, the solar, and so forth in the system. Because don't forget that the cost of renewables has been coming down. I'd like your listeners to, to check the latest IE data on that, because by the time this goes up, probably you know, there's been new data out regarding the price of the unit of solar, hydro and so forth. But until we get to a stage where it really is truly affordable for African countries to make their own play in this, they're going to need investment. They're going to need investments from the outside, or they're going to need to be able to sell what they have that's relatively cheap, which is what's already been discovered, the oil and gas and so forth, to be able to then take the revenues from that to transform their their energy system. So in terms of the the changing mix, I don't have at hand now the figures, but uh, I haven't got my date in front of me, but I think we would expect to see an increasingly greater share of renewables in the energy mix in Africa over the next, say, 20 years or so. You mentioned human capital. As you think about energy and your program, what are you thinking about for education and for people to gain skills and to be able to maybe transfer more and more of that that wealth into the African society or the different countries? So learning is important. So how do you use your role or your platform to help learning and and build this for the future? Jeff, just to be clear, um, Although I work at the IEA, I'm speaking in my personal capacity. You know, sure. I'm, I'm new at the IEA. I've got 30 years behind me I'm looking at these issues from different angles. So I shouldn't be expected to be the IEA voice on this per se right sure. now, because there's certain things where, you know, I'm not part of it. I literally only joined on the 17th of February, went into confinement, and I'm just learning. To answer your question, now, which is a very good question, the nexus between energy and education is, we're going back to first principles. It's actually quite a simple one, really, in terms of schools need power. And if we're talking about the 21st century digital economy, you need power, first and foremost, for the light, you know, in the school, you need power to run the monitors, to run the computer systems, because, you know, the knowledge is out there, but you need to be able to have power to power the computers so children can see the digital libraries and so forth, especially if you're talking about distance learning and so forth in some countries. The only way you can get from the capital to a rural area is to be able to have them hooked up to some kind of network. So you need energy to power that. That's within the school setting. But then we also know that a lot of young people have not been able to maximize their ability to study because they go home, maybe there's power at school, but when they get home at night, they don't have any power at home. With no power at home, how are you going to do your homework? If you do do your homework with candlelight, you're straining your eyes. You're getting more tired. So then there's issues around that in terms of off-grid. And I keep saying on platforms I've spoken on before I joined the IEA, you know, my catchphrase was off-grid in Africa is not the other. I'm saying in an African setting, off-grid should really be part of the holistic national energy program. Because if you think of it in terms of, say, children, for example, in Cote d'Ivoire, where someone developed some solar backpacks. So the young people walk to school and they're charging a backpack. They spend their day in school. When they get home, 
they've got a backpack, which is a lantern, which means they can study at home. That's a classic case of a solar backpack being an off-grid kind of um, decentralized energy uh, little system, the light there, they're able to study. Things around, in terms of rural areas, mini grids, which power pumps to wash hands and water and so forth. So in terms of the education and human capital, the first issue is one around the ability to function and to be able to absorb the knowledge that is being shared with you by your teachers and then be able to then go home and study it. In terms of human capital more broadly, for me, human capital is not, I'm sure for you also, Jeff, it's not just access to the knowledge that's out there, but it's how you yourself as a human being are able to absorb that information, turn it into knowledge, and then use it in your own way. Because then it's capital. It's like, you know, someone tells you one plus one is two. Okay, one plus one is two, but that doesn't mean much until you get to the supermarket and someone is selling you something, you give them some money, and you won't get changed to make sure you haven't been cheated. The capital comes when you realize, oh, how do I use that? So it's applicability of what you've absorbed. Coming back to what I, was, I said earlier about the human organism, human capital again. If you're sleeping in rooms which have no fan or no air condition and mosquitoes are biting you all night, you know, and you have an increased uh, mobility in your kind of local community from malaria, your human capital is not going to get developed to the way that it needs to be. You're going to school, lethargic. You've had malaria maybe two times in the last three years. Again, so the link between energy and health systems, another component for um, human capital. Third component, nutrition. Energy systems are needed to maximize the productivity of the African agricultural system. At the moment, we're still really treading water in Africa. We have not modernized our agriculture system. And by that, I'm not just thinking in terms of, say, the Great Plains of America, where you have tractors and, you know, even the, the smallholder farmers, where the majority of African farmers, many people are still just using a hoe. I'm sure you probably have a garden in America and you can charge this kind of, we charge the back where you charge your hedger and then you go out and you trim your hedges. If we had those kind of systems for the African woman as a farmer, you know, that makes her hoeing whatever she's doing much faster because she's got, she's been energized. And then the agro-processing part of it, which means then food doesn't waste. If food is not wasting, you have ways of storing it. Again, energy comes in to store the food. So therefore, now you move to a stage where you are maximizing the productivity of the agricultural harvest. And then also you're being able to maximize the amount of nutrition the individual is getting. So again, that also builds human capital. So you've got the books you learn at school. You know, you've got the clean water, which is being pumped up through some kind of energy system. And you've got food and that kind of nexus you've got. And of course, with healthcare, if you've got aerated rooms, the key aspect as far as I'm concerned by human capital to make stronger, more robust, Caleb would say, anti-fragile humans that can actually be the humans we need to transform the African continent. As I keep saying, we transform the African continent, we transform planet Earth. For the business leader, executive, what can they do working with opportunities in Africa going forward, but whether it's the consumer, whether it's productive capacity or, or trading relationships? I've been privileged over the last X number of years, so not only have engaged with as an interviewer at the BBC with some very successful people, but also in my work at the United Nations, where I worked in something called the Coalition for Dialogue in Africa, and then later with Kofi Annan, to have engaged with and supported the work in these fora of, of some very wealthy people, some billionaires, in fact, such as the founder of Celtel and the founder of Econet, who are very well-known Africans. And what I took from them, and which also I'd like to repeat to non-African business leaders out there, is that look to the opportunities. There's a persistent narrative going on right now about Africa, which has been going on for a long time, that looks to the so-called perceived risks and the risky operating environment. And again, I wanna say I'm not a Pollyanna. Things are risky, but things are risky everywhere. You have to go in there to look for the opportunities and then of course, do your due diligence and see how you can mitigate those risks. 
but the opportunities are out there. And the second thing I'll say is look for win-wins. Look for investments that don't only seek to make money for you and your business, but to improve the conditions and the lives and the employment of the people in Africa in that sector you're going into. If you go into that intent, I can promise you that you will, if you mitigate your risks, you will get good outcomes. Africa is a continent of opportunity. And that reminds me of a, a joke I want to share with you on that just shows you that because in terms of the riskiness of the situation and how much money people have made in Africa and continue to make, one of my father's first cousins was a high commissioner of a African country to the court of St. James in the 1960s. And uh, he had a very good friend who was an Englishman who basically spent most of his years in Africa. And he would come back every summer and at his uh, apartment in Mayfair, he would hold court. All his English friends come around, you know, and they would always be asking, what's it like in Africa? You know what he'd say? Oh, Africa, Africa. You don't want to go there. Oh, you don't want to go there. They've got flies, they've got snakes, they've got crocodiles as big as that couch. What was he doing? He knew the opportunity. This gentleman has been in Africa 20, 30 years. He was making millions in Africa, but he didn't want anyone else at the table <laughs> eating the cake in Africa. So as I'm saying, sometimes these narratives of Africa, the negatives, there are reasons why people are saying that. Because when the opportunity cost is so high, those who do go, go in have that premium. I say to the business leader, look to the opportunities, do your due diligence, mitigate your risks, and look for a win-win with Africans. If you do that, I promise you, you'll make money and you'll change lives in Africa and you'll change your own life. It's a good one to end on. Are there any books or people that have made a big influence on you, whether it's related to Africa or otherwise? Yes, several books. Earlier in my life, one of the most transformative books I read was the autobiography of Malcolm X. And then recently, just last week, I read Malcolm X by um, Marable, which kind of was a great bookend to that because we know that the book was Malcolm X's story as told to Alex Haley. It wasn't really his complete story. And then this new biography I read was much more um, nuanced. You know, every hero has his flaws. That's what makes him a true hero. And in the Marable one, you get a lot more of that. So that was very influential to me. In terms of my, my early 20s, there's a classic book such as Barry Unsworth, Sacred Hunger, which talked about the triangular slave trade, which is written to the voice of an Englishman who's involved in this trade. It's a very powerful book that influenced me. On the African side, there's Anthills of the Favano by Chinua Achebe, who is one of my favorite writers. Then, of course, in terms of pure fiction, well, people say it's not necessarily pure fiction. There's a book I read when I was like 21 by Norman Mailer called Harlot's Ghost, which has always stuck with me. It gave me an interesting perspective on things and also how you should always look for the narratives below the narratives. I like Mailer's style. And in that book, it's about the history of the company as it transitions from OSS onwards and it's during the Cold War. It's a very good book, very interesting book and only something that Mailer could have pulled off because he mixes fictional crap characters with real life characters. And once, once I read that, I thought, ah, so that's how it, one could be looking at things. And so there's just three for you right there. Fourth one would be say, Manufacturing Consent by Norman Chomsky. Again, so yeah, it's a few. <laughs> so Harlot's Ghost and Manufacturing Consent. <laughs> Got it. Very vivid titles. Awesome, awesome. What are some, some online resources people can find you or follow you? So I don't watch television, so I get my news from my friends who are former journalists or still active journalists. You know, they give me stuff through my WhatsApp feed. And then I, I listen to BBC at least twice a day, World Service, News Hour. That's my go-to news resource. So if I've listened to that, I know I've got the news I need for the day. And then, of course, I follow several people on YouTube, but that's just to kind of see what's being said and go and watch a specific clip. I just literally don't have time to be watching television. I do watch documentaries and films, I have Netflix, but because of this, I was able to in 2018 read 83 books that year. 
you imagine the amount of time you have, you're not looking at the TV screen and someone else is telling you. Don't forget, I used to create news. I was an editor. I know how running orders are done. I know why you're doing it. And so I don't have time to listen to someone else's feed. I'd rather create my own feed and I do that every day. So that's it. <laughs> well put. You can find details on all of these, emphasis.com forward slash IKI in our podcast section. Max, thank you so much for your time and a very stimulating, interesting discussion. You've been listening to the Knowledge Institute, where we talk with experts on business trends, deconstruct main ideas, and share their insights. Thanks to our producer, Catherine Burdett, Dode Bigley, and the entire Knowledge Institute team. Until next time, keep learning and keep sharing.